Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is a mini-episode, Koyak Festivities, part four in our 12-part series on the Egyptian year and its religious ceremonies. Koyak is a Greek version of the Egyptian ka or ka upon ka. By ka, the Egyptians mean the essence or vitality, part of the soul, and so the month of Koyak, ka her ka, is soul upon soul. We'll see why throughout this episode, the month was dedicated extensively to religious festivals centred around the myths of the dead, in particular, the great god Osiris. In this time, the Egyptians celebrated the last phase in their long reenactment of that great legend, the tale of Osiris. By the end of the month, the Egyptians would have celebrated a divine marriage, a blue-collar workers' festival, and the final phase in the burial and honouring of Osiris, the eternal father of the king of Egypt. Let's dive in. Koyak, also called Neheb Kau, began in approximately November. As the fourth month of the flood, or inundation, Koyak was the final month in the season of Akhet. After a slightly quiet third month, the month of Koyak began with a festival dedicated to the great goddess Hathor. As a way of closing out the month that had gone before, a month named Hathor, this little ceremony was aimed at giving the goddess one last celebration before the year continued. Interestingly, it seems to have involved the goddess getting married. The Koyak festival of Hathor was named the Khenet Hut Her, or the Sailing of Hathor. The Sailing of Hathor is an elusive festival and probably varied from place to place. The basic gist of it was, the statue of Hathor, hidden in her local sanctuary, would be taken out of the shrine and placed on board a small portable boat. The boat was carried out of the temple by the priests, and so the goddess emerged into public. As you can imagine, she was a crowd favourite. The celebration of Hathor was like a Christmas parade. Musicians played instruments, worshippers threw flowers and garlands, and wore their special amulets in the shape of Hathor's unique head. This was the face of a woman, seen from the front, with a large headdress and small cow ears. Hathor amulets encouraged fertility in women, and protected all from danger. So, this was a celebrated day. The goddess's statue was carried through the streets, and taken to another nearby temple. This would usually be the local temple of Horus, although it may have varied from community to community. At the goddess's greatest temple, Dendera, built in the period of the Macedonian Ptolemies, the goddess was taken from her temple down to a river boat. The priests, with their valuable cargo, boarded the boat and sailed northward, down river, towards another nearby temple. This was the temple of Edfu, bastion of the great royal god himself, Horus, the son of Isis. At Edfu, Hathor visited Horus, 
and the two enjoyed a symbolic marriage. Hathor wed Horus. The statues kissed, I assume. I kind of just want to imagine the priests tapping their faces together like Barbie and Ken dolls. And then Hathor left to return to her home at Dendera. This whole affair took a few days, and in some periods, the celebrations could last all month. So the sailing of Hathor could be a grand affair. Naturally, there was plenty of gaiety and festivities. The goddess had come out of her shrine and gone to visit her divine consort, Horus. Their marriage had been enacted, or possibly renewed, and so the celebrations were all flowing. On top of that, the day was even declared to be a special Heru Pa'ir Neferu, or Day of Good Deeds. So everyone was enjoying themselves and trying to be good to one another. Truly, November was the season to love thy fellow human, and also make divine statues kiss. The sailing of Hathor was the first festival of the month of Koyak, and it was the only one that had nothing to do with Osiris. Since the inundation season was now coming to its end, and planting was beginning to resume, the greatest celebrations in the month of Koyak were all about the god Osiris. Well, Osiris and a few of his friends or comrades. On day 19 of the month, the Egyptians began to celebrate what is now the Koyak Festival. Three guesses as to why it's called that. The Koyak Festival took place over about 12 to 18 days, depending on the time period. In the New Kingdom, where our narrative currently sits, the festival lasted from day 19 to day 30. So, 12 days of Koyak. On the first day of Koyak, my true love gave to me, the beginning of the rituals associated with the legend of Osiris. If we remember our mythology, Osiris had been cruelly murdered by his ambitious brother Seth. Seth, seeking to make his crime permanent, had cut Osiris's body up into many pieces – arms, legs, eyes, organs, etc. – and scattered them throughout Egypt. Well, in the Koyak festival, the Egyptians began to gather those pieces together. In what may be the most macabre scavenger hunt in history, the Twelve Days of the Koyak Festival featured an endless litany of body parts collected from the various fields and agricultural spaces of the land. On the first day, day 19, they found Osiris's head. It was a head start. On day 20, they found the eyes. Then they found the jaw, the neck, the arm, the innards and intestines. Then they found the lungs, phallus, thighs, legs, the fingers, the other arm, and of course, the heart. Over the twelve days of the festival, these pieces were collected together to reassemble the body of the king. Of course, what the priests were probably doing was producing ritual models of the items themselves. They would bring forth replica limbs, organs, etc. made of terracotta, wood or silver, depending on the wealth of the temple in question. They would offer these to the statue of the god. It is a reasonable bet that priestesses dressed as Isis and Nephthys, Osiris's sisters, participated in this ritual as a way of building on their period of mourning and lamentation from the month before. The pieces were all collected by day 29, but in the meantime, there had been a few other activities going on as well. According to the festival calendars of the New Kingdom, in particular, one commissioned by Pharaoh Ramesses III in his temple at Medinet Habu, we are told that the next phase of Koyak was dedicated heavily towards the union of agriculture and divine resurrection. 
While the priests were gathering the pieces of Osiris' body, farmers in the fields were beginning to plough their soil. The Nile flood had now receded from most of the land, and work was beginning all well underway. With this in mind, it is possible that this festival was more ceremonial. Actual ploughing would have begun at different times depending on where you lived in Egypt. Those living in the south enjoyed the end of the flood earlier than those in the far north, so the ritual of ploughing was probably at least partly symbolic. Anyway, for this ritual, priests and farmers went out into the fields with their hoes and began to dig furrows in the earth. Of course, this was all about renewing Egypt's agriculture and preparing the soil for new growth. That had been one of Osiris's main roles in nature, and so this ritual occurred during the process where they collected his body parts together. In fact, the day of ploughing actually coincided with the day of finding the god's arm and neck, so I imagine there was more than one creative priest who buried a model neck or arm ahead of time so that it could be uncovered in the course of ploughing. If not, well, that was really a missed opportunity. Anyway, about halfway through the Koyak festival on days 24, 25, and 26, the Egyptians also celebrated a related festival. This was the festival of the god Sokar, who I'm excited to introduce to our podcast in proper fashion. Sokar is a very ancient god. He appears in the pyramid texts of the Old Kingdom, so he's at least as old as the late 5th dynasty, about 2350 BCE. Sokar comes from the region of Memphis, and he is closely associated with two things, the necropolis at Memphis, and the craftsmen living in this area. Sokar was depicted in many different ways over time. His main motif was that he had the head of a falcon, that was always consistent. But his body changed. Sometimes he was a falcon-headed man, other times he wore the shroud of a mummy. In his most abstract, Sokar was depicted as a mound of earth with the head of a falcon perched on top. So he was a bit abstract, but you could always count on the falcon part. Falcon-headed Sokar became associated early on with the funerary rites and the royal necropolis at Memphis. Worshipping Sokar, particularly in the month of Koyak, was aimed at renewing and preserving the eternal longevity of the royal funerary cult. You know, the religious rites that nourished and empowered a king's soul in the afterlife. Well, theoretically, those rites were meant to last forever. Celebrations to Sokar were intended to show that that happened correctly. Now, the actual festival itself. For the festival of Sokar, priests at Memphis would carry the god out of his temple and towards the fields. There, he would accompany the king, or the priest standing in for the king, to do some of that ploughing that I mentioned earlier, and also to help to dig any irrigation ditches or canals that might be needed. These were important royal activities, from the very dawn of Egyptian civilization around 3100 BCE, kings were depicting themselves working to dig ditches and canals, and prepare the land for agriculture. Heck, even the scorpion king appears on a macehead doing just that. So, you know, it's important. Anyway, Sokar helped the king to perform this ritual. But it wasn't long before the god started to gain other associations as well. 
Because Sokar was responsible for the royal funerary cult, and he lived, quote-unquote, in Memphis, it wasn't long before he picked up a few associations with the royal craftsmen there. After all, Old Kingdom Memphis was the place to be buried if you were wealthy or prominent in society. And tombs require craftsmen, builders, painters, artisans, etc. So Sokar picked up some extracurricular responsibilities. To cut a long story short, Sokar basically slowly became associated with the royal funerary cult, the craftsmen who helped that cult flourish in the form of tombs, and of course, the funerary underworld itself. Which is how he sometimes came to be depicted as a mummy, and how he wound up being worshipped in the middle of Osiris's festival. We'll leave Sokar for now, and I'll revisit his festival in greater detail in a future episode. So days 24, 25, and 26 were dedicated to Osiris in the ongoing hunt for his body, but also to Sokar, who watched over the funerary cult and ensured the longevity of the deceased souls. It was an important few days, with a great deal of religious activity going on throughout the land. When the sun set on day 26 of Koyak, the celebrations of Sokar came to their end for now. There was just one more important ritual left to complete for the month. The Egyptians now moved on to a most important ritual for Osiris, one of the most powerful symbolic acts that they could do as part of the god's mythical story. In one version of the Osiris legend, the body of Osiris had washed out to sea and wound up at the city of Byblos in Lebanon. At Byblos, Osiris's body washed up on the shore and soon became incorporated into the trunk of a tree. That tree was later cut down and used by a local king for his palace. That is where Isis found him, standing tall as an enduring pillar. The Egyptians referred to this strange pillar as the Jed Pillar. The word Jed can mean either enduring or eternal, variations on the same idea. Basically, the Jed Pillar might also be called the Pillar of Eternity. It was a formidable symbol of endurance, of longevity and stability. It may also have had agricultural overtones, since the original symbol may have been a pillar with sheaves of grain attached. Alternatively, it may be characterised as the god's backbone, since it kind of looks like a spine with vertebra. Either way, by the New Kingdom, the Jed Pillar had become a standard symbol, a tall pillar curved slightly inward on either side, with cross bars decorating the upper third. As a column and support, the Jed symbol was enduring. On day 30 of Koyak, the last day of the month, the Egyptians reenacted a ceremony called Raising the Jed Pillar. This was an elaborate ceremony in which the king himself participated. Thanks to some surviving papyri from the 19th dynasty, about 1200 BCE, we have a good idea of what this entailed. The ritual of raising the Jed Pillar had six phases. I'll just do them in flyby for now and explore them in more detail in a future episode. From beginning to end, the ritual went like this. Step 1. Setting up the accessories in the area of the ritual. The area was a granary threshing floor, set before a shrine for the divine boat on which the statue of Osiris sat. The king, as Horus, came forth, and requested that his priests, dressed as Thoth, as Seth, 
and as Isis, bring forward various items. Among the accessories, these gods brought forth a crown, foodstuffs like grain and cakes, and of course, a sacrificial bull. The bull was sacrificed, and a back-and-forth dialogue ensued between Horus and the priest dressed as Thoth. Horus received his staff together with part of the sacrificial bull. Thoth then crowned Horus with the crown of Lower Egypt, the Red Crown. In this, Horus then, quote, marches in procession up through the mountains, establishing dominion over desert and valley. In the third phase, Horus challenged the followers of Seth, and he defeated them. Three bulls, representing Seth's loyal followers, were brought forth. They trampled on stalks of grain, which resembled the pieces of Osiris's body. Horus, enraged, sacrificed those bulls, and so defeated Seth's followers. In the fourth step, the Jed Pillar was raised at last. Ropes were lashed to the pillar, and offerings of sacrificial animals are offered up to the symbol of Osiris. The king's children, or his followers, now pulled the pillar up using ropes. There followed dancing and music. Part 5. This part is quite fun. Seth now broke free of his restraints and challenged Horus to a duel. The two fought with swords, and their followers got into a brawl. In the end, Horus and his comrades emerged victorious. Step 6. Horus, now victorious, was crowned as king of Egypt. Upper and lower Egypt were unified, and the ritual came to its end. So the pillar of Osiris, the Jed, was raised. Seth was defeated, and the religious reenactment of the Osiris myth came to its climax. With this ceremony, the Egyptians completed their rituals for the month, and they celebrated it with music and dance. The raising of the Jed pillar was an important transition. The rule of Osiris was passed down to his son through the ritual, and the new age of the world began. Likewise, the season of the flood, the inundation, was now coming to its end, and the new season, that of planting, was about to begin. As the month of Koyak closed, the Egyptians were saying farewell to the season of the flood. Arket was now over, and the period of Osiris' death was over. With the completion of the sailing of Hathor, the god Horus was now married, and with the raising of the Jed pillar, Horus was crowned as king of Egypt once again. So this was an important time, the renewal of the world order, and the preservation of the king's power for another year. Additionally, the workers of Memphis, under the watch of their patron, Sokar, had enjoyed a celebration of their favoured divinity. So the men who constructed the royal tombs, and those of the elite, were enjoying a moment of public recognition. It was a good time to be in the business of death. Of course, just as death was celebrated, it was important to plan for new life. Koyak and the flood were over. Now, Egyptians were returning to work. The fields had to be ploughed and sowed. The agricultural year was beginning.